I'm Brad. Welcome to Strange for History, the podcast where I talk about, you guessed it, strange history. This is an older episode, recorded and produced before the podcast started to get attention, before editing was done to episodes, before I had a good feeling for how an episode of Strange for History needed to sound, and before our rebranding to Strange for History. These old episodes are not for the faint of heart. There's a lot of stuff here that I'm really not proud of, like audio glitches, bad dialogue, poor editing, and segments that needed to be dropped, like the interviews, or like the rapid-fire history facts. While you're welcome to start and listen from here, I would recommend that you fast-forward to episode 12, Spanish Civil War, instead. Either here or there, I hope you enjoy this journey that we will take together as we explore many of the things that make us, us. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this little podcast, and even if you do not continue past here, I do so very much appreciate you and your time. Episode 3, Dark Science. This episode will feature some things that will be hard to hear for some people. Today we'll be talking about Nazism, human experiments, children, and a lot of other things that may be disturbing for some people. Because of the nature of this episode, which will cover topics such as electroconvulsion, sterilization, and anti-Semitism, you should take the next few seconds to determine whether or not you'll be okay with listening to these topics for the next few minutes. If not, I wish you well, and I'll see you on next week's episode. Rising to power in the early to mid-1930s, the National Socialist German Workers' Party quickly claimed 107 seats in the Reichstag, the equivalency of the German Senate. The party, also referred to as Nazis, sought to dramatically increase the strength of the country, while also strengthening the German people and the Aryan master race through a variety of means. The most tame of these were simple social programs and welfare programs. But at its core, the Nazi party sought another type of strength, purity. In addition to eugenics, the group also called for the extermination and elimination of those deemed racially impure. Jews, Romani, Poles, Slavs, homosexuals, the mentally or physically handicapped, Africans, Jehovah's Witnesses, and political opposition were all at risk of being cleansed under orders of the Third Reich. After years of abuse at the hands of the Nazi party, eventually a final solution was put in place to deal with the unclean and impure peoples. The final solution, also known today as the Holocaust, would lead to the eventual genocide of close to six million Jews and other enemies of the state. Around the early 1940s, another idea came to the table, and the Nazi Human Experiment Program began. Victims would include Jews, disabled Germans, Romani, Soviet POWs, and anyone considered different or interesting or unique by the standards of the time. 
No consent was needed for the projects, and victims were chosen against their will, often being forced to participate by the Nazi doctors. Typical procedures would include bodily trauma, disfigurement, permanent disability, or even death, with most of these procedures being considered medical torture. At several concentration and death camps, these experiments would be done on unwilling victims in an attempt to help the German military produce new weapons, develop new medical technologies, and push humanity to the breaking point for nothing more than study and research. After the war was over, many doctors who had participated in these dangerous and deadly studies would be put on trial at Nuremberg for their crimes. These doctors' trials, as they had become known, would lead to the creation of the Nuremberg Code of Medical Ethics. Today, we will delve into some of these heinous actions, trying to learn a little bit more about the Nazi experiments that so many were forced to endure. Again, this is going to get messy and nasty. Some people might not want to hear this, and this is your last chance to stop. Child experiments, which started in 1943, were mostly performed on twins in an attempt to map out genetic differences and similarities in twins. The project leader, Josef Mengel, performed nearly 1,500 experiments on twins in the Auschwitz camp. Of the 1,500 people, only around 200 would go on to survive. The twins would be arranged by age and gender, and kept in a separate barracks on site. One of the first experiments would involve painful and dangerous injections in an attempt to change the color of the eyes of these twins. Injections would sometimes occur in the back. Other times, dyes would be injected directly into the eyes of the patients. In the event of a death, it was noted on several occasions that a lethal injection would be administered to the heart of the other twin, killing them as well. Another childhood experiment, of course, was the creation of forced conjoined twins, in which a set of twins would be sewn together. Again, if one would die, the other would be executed, and both would be examined to find out why, or to find differences in the bodies. Another practice started in September of 1942 at Ravensbrück for the benefit of the German military. This practice was the art of removing bones, muscle, and nerve endings from still very much alive and very conscious people. Often, Anastasia wasn't even used during the surgery, forcing those enduring the event to feel absolutely everything. As a result of these surgeries, most victims would go on to suffer a lifetime of agony, intense mutilation, or permanent disability. The general idea behind this specific experiment was to test the limits of the human body in terms of pain, regeneration, and test other practical combat applications for the German military. Another experiment would involve various immune tests, during which people would be injected with weaponized and non-weaponized versions of various diseases, such as tuberculosis, malaria, typhus, or yellow fever. Another still were freezing experiments. These would be performed in an attempt to find out if there is a way to make German soldiers more cold-resistant. 
It was believed that Russian genetics held the secret to natural cold resistance. So the majority of these experiments would take place on captive Soviet POWs. Captives would be placed in large tanks of freezing water and routinely forced into a state of medically induced hypothermia, in an attempt to find out how cold it had to be for human function to stop. This process, although different at its core, is eerily similar to hydrotherapy used in various mental health institutions for curing anxiety and other issues. Another sadistic set of experiments were those on the young men and women of reproductive age. In an attempt to keep the Aryan nation strong and powerful, anyone displaying mental disorders or undesirable personality traits would often be sterilized against their will. Within four years of its conception, the program would see the sterilization of 300,000 patients. An additional 400,000 people would be sterilized outside of the experiments as part of a compulsory sterilization program, attempting to do away with things like insanity, deafness, blindness, alcoholism, and physical deformities. To achieve the goal, tons of different attempts would come into play, ranging from iodine and silver nitrate injections to long-term x-ray exposures. Unfortunately, there are countless other experiments that are both known and unknown. Although Nazi Germany fell roughly 27,600 days ago, the effects of its experiments on people are, of course, still in place. As recently as 1989, its research was still being quoted by the Environmental Protection Agency, or EPA, trying to aid U.S. soldiers in protection from phosphogen gas while stationed in the Persian Gulf. Most modern agencies cite data inconsistencies, scientific fraud, and moral or ethical issues for reasons to not use the various data gathered by Nazi scientists. The human experiments in Germany ended with its fall, although the love affair with Nazism still today isn't dead. Hopefully this part of history is forever dead, gone, and buried. I'm going to start changing a small part of our podcast. In previous episodes, and I'm sure you guys remembered it, I just machine gun full auto fired several random historical events with little to no coverage whatsoever. From now on, I'm going to start covering just one event in much more depth. At the time of writing this episode, the date was December 7th. On December 7th, 1703, off the coast of England, a massive superstorm called an extratropical cyclone began to form and eventually made landfall. High winds caused nearly 2,000 chimneys in London to collapse, and the new forest lost 4,000 of its massive ancient oak trees, and ships were blown hundreds of miles off of course. 
Thousands of sailors would die at the hands of this superstorm, which was believed to simply be vengeance from God. One ship was found roughly 15 miles inland, thrown aground by the storm, which today would surpass a Category 2 hurricane. An estimated death count puts the loss of life anywhere from its lowest estimate of 8,000 people to its highest estimate of around 15,000. Thirteen ships from the Royal Navy and the entire Channel Squadron were lost to the massive storm as well. Overall, one-fifth of all ships in England would meet their end, as well as one-third of England's Royal Navy enlisted personnel. It would go down as one of the most dangerous and aggressive storms of that century. So today, for the Q&A portion, I have my friend, Nathaniel. So, it's going, my friend. It's going. I'm just hoping that I can hear you over the little speaker I have. So, what do you know about the Nazi human experimentation program? Well, I know that it, it didn't just start with them. Um, a lot of people think that um, the human experimentation and a lot of the things that uh, Dr. Josef Mengele um, did and was inspired by started with him and his inner circle and Hitler's inner circle, which is absolutely not true. Um, the Nazi eugenics movement actually can be traced over to, believe it or not, and a lot of people aren't ready for this, <laughs> um, California. And that was the birth of what was called the American Eugenics Movement. Now, that was started before Nazi Germany actually came to power. They were still kind of in that in that gaining power phase in the 1930s. That was when the American Eugenics Movement was kind of gaining traction. And what happened was that some of the Nazi uh, propaganda leaders and some of people like Dr. Mengele saw things like this eugenics movement that was coming out of California and things that the U.S. had previously done, such as the Jim Crow laws, and thought, hey, we could take some of those things and apply them over here. And unfortunately, but they did it on a much larger scale and on a scale that I don't think the rest of the world had seen before. So that's that's uncomfortable for, for definitely for a lot of people, but that's something that definitely needs to be understood is that, unfortunately, um, the roots of the eugenics movement and some of those experiments um, uh, have their foundation set here. And that's really where I wanted to go, where I wanted to start, because I feel like that kind of sets the precipice for, you know, what can we, what did we learn from these, and what can we as, not just the United States, but as, as a as a world community, I kind of, I'm kind of getting like esoteric and <laughs> prophetic about this, but um, uh, take heart in the fact that it didn't just, it wasn't just them that looked at this and took inspiration from it. Definitely Japan, I don't know if they were previously inspired 
by somebody else, but I do know that um, one of their one of their units, Unit Seven Three One, also carried out horrible experiments during this time, it was mostly on Chinese war prisoners. But that's not really the focus. I but um, it, it can be called into question whether or not we inspired them too, or they had their own sources. But um, that's the one thing I wanted to get off the ground first of all is um, I've seen. A couple of people talk about that in the past, and when I heard it, when I first heard about that, I was listening to NPR of all things, and um, you know they were talking about how you know they carried out these horrible experiments on prisoners, and it was things like you know um, trying to take two different twins and trying to conjoin them together to make a conjoined twin, and then uh, the one thing that I remember to this day is the radio host said American eugenics inspired the Nazis. And I remember looking at my radio, like, wait a minute, what? So yeah, I did some digging and I found that it started in California, which is considered the most progressive of all these, of all the U S states nowadays, which, so I didn't really expect that out of something like California, but yeah, I do know, I do know about that. I do know about the, truly horrific things that he did to people when he was when he was running his experiments in the, the late 30s and the early 40s. What do you think about the correlation between a lot of the different experiments that were performed for practical combat applications and how they transfer to a mental health care setting? Like, I know you've hung around the asylum in Weston quite a lot with me, with your mom, with the other co-workers. I know you've probably heard of the hydrotherapy that we'd use there. Uh-huh. Did you know that the practice of hydrotherapy was actually first started in an attempt to find out if the German military could actually survive Russian winters? Oh, no, I didn't actually. I didn't know that correlation. That's really interesting. Yeah, the, um, the, uh, It's not surprising, but yeah, I could definitely – I definitely didn't know that about them. <laughs> Yeah, they actually did it the exact same way the mental health care systems here in the U.S. would do, which is submerging people into vats of freezing cold water just to see how long it took them to stop functioning correctly. When it made it over to the U.S., we used it to cure things like anxiety. But over there, it was just pure experimentation for the grounds of trying to conquer another people. Yeah, I can definitely definitely see somebody like – for just and for example, just to name a person, Dr. Mengele, seeing a practice that we were doing, um, kind of out of context, um, and I'll explain that in a second. But seeing that practice, the way it's being used, and saying we could use that for this, because he did have—I don't know what kind of credentials he had—but he was called a doctor in, in Nazi Germany, so he was. He saw this idea, he took it, and he used it for a different application, which in your case you said was a was a was basically a military training exercise. Now, what's interesting is that they were using they were using the practice of hydrotherapy as it was used at that time, but, I mean, you probably already know that hydrotherapy really didn't start out that way. It started earlier, and it was used it was used a little bit more sparingly, but as time went on and as medical science in the United States and, and the 
history of psychological treatment went on in the United States, we started to use it more like more like that and more as a punishment because we were really that was getting towards us, you know, taking in more people and us getting and the asylums in the United States getting a little bit overloaded. Um, they weren't at the point where they it, where it was in the 1940s and 50s. That was really when the warehousing began. But it can be said that they, we started to see a, more of an influx of people at that time. But that's an entirely different topic that we can get into at some point. Oh, absolutely. Um, but yeah, I can definitely see it. It's not, I, like I said, it's not surprising that he would do something like that. But I can definitely, I didn't know that. And I could kind, I could kind of see that correlation now. That's actually fascinating. It actually is. It's very interesting. A lot of the things that we know of today, whether it's in a medical setting or whether it's agricultural, actually came out of Germany. Like the, uh, oh, I can never get the pronunciation right. The uh, Zyglon B gas that were used in concentration and death camps is actually a major part of most fertilizers today. Oh, that's interesting. All right. So, yeah, it's, it's, oh, I'm sorry. Oh, no, go ahead. Um, I just wanted to say that it's, it's really interesting. Some of the things that come out of these experiments, even though some of them were horrible, like I can name some other examples like that one you said was a result of, you know, of that basically what you said, that Zygon, I think that's what you called it, that, that gas that you named was used for agricultural purposes. For, for a similar example, um, you know who J. Marin Sims is, right? I believe so. Yeah, he was considered to be the, the father of American gynecology. Uh, he also had a very unorthodox way of going about his treatments. He would he thought that the cause of most mental diseases in, in women were the result of untreated infections of the body. So he would go about, often without anesthesia, would go about removing teeth, tongues, uh, cervixes, colons, um, testicles, you know, trigger warning, you know, things like that. And... Um, but oddly enough, uh, what he did actually kind of contributed to our knowledge of human anatomy, which was, which sounds weird, because you wouldn't think that. But then at the same time, it it kind of makes sense. It kind of makes sense that that would that, that would happen. And so it's kind of like, I don't know. I was trying to relate it to you know. It's it's kind of interesting to find out what what we gain from some of these things, even though they're some of them are really unethical. Right. That's all the point I'm trying to make. And I mean, it's a very good point to make. Like, unfortunately, and as much as I hate to say it, without the things that occurred in those, you know, those locked rooms a world away 70, 80 years ago, we wouldn't know a lot about what we know of today. Yeah. And unfortunately, I hate, and I hate to say that too, but uh, uh, that's the. That's the thing that we realized with uh, Shiro Ishii, who was the commander of Unit 731 in Japan. Um, we gave him a pardon for all of the stuff he found conducting his experiments on, on Chinese prisoners, and he ended up living to a ripe old age. Um, it can be debated whether or not some of these people were just torturing people and calling it science, or whether or not they were actually making legitimate contributions to the scientific community. Right. But um, all that aside... We can't really deny that some of these things that we learned did benefit us and did benefit the scientific community as far as knowledge goes. All right. Well, I think that's all I have for you today. All right. Well, thank you for having me on. It was really, 
it was really good talking about this. This this is one of my favorite subjects is World War II history, and I'd really I'd really like to you know come back on again. Oh, absolutely, of course. I will make sure to include you next time. Well, maybe not next time. I might give someone else, but I'll definitely have you back on. You're a good conversational partner. All right. Well, thank you so much. I really enjoyed being here. Hey, anytime. All right, guys, and that was my friend Nathan, right? Nat Nathan Nathaniel. I go by Nate generally. All right, go by Nate. Sorry about that. Nah, you're good. You're good. Alrighty. Thank you for your time, my friend. All right. Thank you so much. Later. All right, guys, and that's going to bring about the end of our episode. That was a little bit longer interview than normal. I'm trying to transition away from people who don't really know a lot about the subjects I'm mentioning to those who are a little bit more versed in exactly what it is I'm discussing. Next week, I'm going to start on a little two or three part series, and we're going to delve into trials, starting with the rather unknown werewolf trials, and then moving into uh, witch trials. I don't know who I'm going to have as next week's interviewer or interviewee, but I'll definitely find someone who I think would know what they're talking about. So thank you so much for listening. If you've enjoyed the episode, go ahead and rate it. Leave a review on Apple on a Apple Podcasts. Tell your friends or follow the new Twitter page we have. You should be able to find us on Twitter at Strange History, and I believe it's number three. All righty. Thank you guys so much for listening. Have a fantastic day. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of Strange for History. I hope you enjoyed learning about today's subject, and it was a lot of fun having you with Brad, not me. <laughs> You'll have me if you start on episode 12. You can find this podcast on many different places, such as Facebook and Twitter. That's at Strange, the number four history, and on all major streaming sites as well, such as Google, Amazon, Spotify, Apple, um, even Good Pods, those indie ones, or really wherever your ears are listening. We at Strange for History appreciate your companionship and hope you continue to enjoy learning about those strange, weird things that make us us. <laughs>